Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A committed person is hard to find in 2021. Well, let me rephrase. All of us, every last one of us, are committed to ourselves, and we organize the time allotted to us as such. Few of us, less than a few, are committed to something that does not directly benefit us or someone for whom we care. In Matthew, Jesus is committed to the teaching of the Father. Even though his disciples are hopeless, the situation is stark, and his end, as per his Father, is unavoidable, Jesus continues to teach. Why? Because he is committed to his Father's will to the bitter end. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 51 to 54. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 403 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have been talking about the snoozing watchman now for the past two episodes. And last week we mentioned that even if those who were to keep watch with Jesus had done their job... The Lord, in submission to the will of God, would have told them not to interfere with the ochlos that had come to arrest him and take him away. Why? Because it is the will of God the Father that he be taken away, put on trial, and ultimately executed. And here, I think it's important, Rich, that we stress this point. It's a very uncomfortable point. You've said many times to me in our private conversations and in lectures you've given at church and elsewhere, that when you hear Ezekiel, God is a very unpleasant character. The prophecy of Ezekiel is a very unpleasant text. You don't like what God has to say, and you don't like what the prophet Ezekiel as a story is saying. It's not pleasant. And I want to extend that comment to the crucifixion in Matthew. If you hear Matthew and think that you like the story of the crucifixion, you're not hearing what is happening. So let me make it plain, because I know that by the time you get to church on Sunday and it's explained to you in your adult education class— they're going to soften the blow. God is willing. He has decided that his son is to be executed. 
I said last week that God is allowing it to happen, which is true, but that's not the end of the statement. It's not as though he's sitting back because somebody else wants it to happen. I need to make sure you don't misinterpret my statement. God wills that his son be executed. That is what the Father wills. And in this sense, he is the Don. He is the Godfather who is pulling the strings to ensure that this is the outcome, this is the end that Jesus is forced to meet. And that's why, as we said last week, should one of the twelve come to the defense of Jesus, he's going to tell them, with all due respect, while I did ask you to keep watch, I did not ask you to defend me, because this is what my father wills. And that is a bitter pill to swallow. What kind of a parent orders their son to his death? Thank you for bringing up this very troubling aspect of the Bible. You know, there's so many ways that, like you said, we soften the blow of the cross and how gruesome and how cruel the crucifixion is, and people do all different sorts of things. I mean, they wear a gold-plated cross around their neck, or they, you know, talk about the life-giving cross, or they talk about how, well, it's not about the crucifixion, really, it's about the resurrection, and they do all these different things, but that's why I think you actually have to know Ezekiel before you're going to understand this, because it's a lot harder to say that stuff about Jerusalem. Are you going to carry a smoldering pile of Jerusalemite bodies gold-plated around your neck? No, because it's gruesome and terrible. You don't want to do that. Are you going to say, oh, it's okay that all the old men, women, and children were killed in Jerusalem? Because really, you know, God is going to rebuild Jerusalem eventually, so it's not a problem that God decided to kill all the innocent people there who turned away from God. It's okay. No, we don't want to say that either. We try to get out of the terror and the horror of the cross by coming up with these other stories and focusing on them so we don't have to actually look at what happens on the cross. But when you read Ezekiel, 36 chapters about what's going to happen to Jerusalem and the surrounding nations, and none of it is good. And the reanimation of the bones creates an army not just a bunch of people, an army, because he's out on the field where the bones are, and those are the bones of soldiers who were killed in this. I mean, the story of Job, my professor used to always poke at people who tried to make something good out of God at the end of Job. You think it's the same if all the kids are dead? Just say, oh, I'll give them some more kids then afterwards. That'll do it. How does that make any sense? The way that you heal the grief of losing all of your children is just have more children? That's not how humans work. So we have to understand the true terror and the true horror of these stories. So when someone wants to defend Jesus, and we say, oh, those silly people think that they can defend Jesus with a sword. At least they're taking it seriously in the story. (laughs) The person who decides that he wants to defend Jesus is taking it seriously, like he doesn't want this to happen. We're all okay with it happening, because we know about the resurrection, and we know that God is actually all loving, and so it's all going to come out okay in the end. Hey, it's going to come out okay in the end, but through horrible, 
torturous, humiliating means. And when you said, Father, that the disciples had their chance to stay awake and they could just walk away when they saw the crowds coming instead of having to fight them off with a sword, they missed their opportunity. This is a dollar short and a day late. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. While in the Gospel of John, it specifies that it was Peter who cut off the ear of the slave of the high priest, here it does not indicate specifically who did so. It just says those who were with Jesus. You might be able to presume it was those who were tapped or assigned to keep watch, but it's not specific. So it could be others who were with Jesus. We don't know. But the fact remains that whoever it was, even though they finally stood up and did something, they did the wrong thing, which is why I'm inclined to think that it's referring to those who were with Jesus, the people who were snoozing, and as you said, who came a day late and a dollar short, I think it works either way, honestly, Richard. I think it's important to raise the question that you raised because the text is not specific. Either way, they're a day late and a dollar short in attempting to fulfill their duty. And because they're late and they don't know what they're doing, they did the very thing that you're not supposed to do if you're truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're supposed to hear and repeat what he's been teaching throughout the entire book. Now, if you are going to hear something, you have to hear it through your ear. And if you're going to repeat it to someone else, you have to speak it into their ear. Now, how can you do that when you cut the guy's ear off? That has to be the dumbest move in the history of teaching. And if you don't believe me, ask me about the dumbest action scene in the history of literature. Name a single action movie. (laughs) Name a single fight scene where the climactic moment is the chopping off of an ear. That makes no sense as an action scene. I mean, it's so obviously a literary metaphor meant to drive home the folly of the sleepy disciples. (laughs) I mean, it's right there in front of you. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, talking about not having ears to hear. This guy has half of his ears to hear, and uh, it was thanks to the one who was charged with teaching. I mean, if the people you're supposed to preach to don't have ears because of you, and the reason why they don't have ears to hear and why you removed their ear to hear is because you were not attentive to the voice of your teacher, i.e. Jesus, beforehand. You see how this works. You don't listen to Jesus, and then when you have to deal with those who are against Jesus, you can't preach to them. All you can do is take their ears off. That's what you're going to end up doing. They no longer have ears to hear because you're not interested in following the message either. So I'm not saying that the person 
who is teaching has to be faithful in their actions to the word in order to preach the word. I'm not saying that. Anyone can preach the word. The lowliest criminal can read scripture and they're teaching the word. They don't have to believe it. They don't have to do it. If they read it out loud, I am bound to it. I am a respectable, white, straight, male, upper middle class, suburbs. I've got it all. But as soon as the heroin-addicted homeless person starts preaching the gospel to me, I have to listen. I don't have a choice. It's not his word. It's not my word. It's the word that comes from on high. Even in this moment, Jesus has to teach. And we've been saying that for the last couple chapters during a time when it seems like it's an action scene, but Jesus treats everything like a teaching scene. (laughs) You know, what a boring guy Jesus must be, because even in the middle of action, he still wants to lecture. (laughs) He's not here to excite people. He's here for people to listen. Even if it's a crowd of people ready to kill him on the spot, he's not dead yet, so it's still time to teach. And using Markan terms, he has to sow the seed until his last breath, until he no longer has fingers to sow. He has to keep sowing. And this violence of striking the slave of the high priest makes it even less likely that potential students will hear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take Up the sword shall perish by the sword. And let me just put it to rest, all of you lovers of the story of Agamemnon, who want to undermine the gospel of Matthew by saying, oh, Jesus didn't say it first. First of all, Matthew said it. Jesus said it in Matthew's gospel. That's the first thing that we need to clarify. But more importantly, if Matthew is referring to the Oresteia, he is doing so to point out to you the folly of Agamemnon and the fruit that he reaped, which is a murderous queen. (laughs) And she was a Spartan from a warlike tribe. And she's the one who murdered him. So it's ironic if Jesus is quoting the Oresteia. It's ironic. He's making fun of these characters, and he's asking his followers, is this what you want? Are we back now? You want Saul? Is that what you're asking for? Or do you want a crucified Lord? Put the sword away. How long have I been teaching that you still want to whip out the sword? The allusion to this quote from the Oresteia by Aeschylus in the mouth of Clytemnestra is interesting. What the connection is exactly, hard to say. Jesus isn't quoting from the Oresteia. There's a likeness in the meaning here. It seems like Jesus is saying, look, you've got a choice here. Which system of justice do you want? Because if you want Caesar... You're going to have to live by Caesar's rules. If you want to act like you live by Caesar's rules, then Caesar's rules are going to act on you. If you want to live according to the kingdom of heaven, if you want to live according to my father's rules, you can live that way too. But like we learn in Ephesians, 
Paul says we only have one sword, and that's the word. Here, he's got a metal sword, and he chops people's ears off. Okay? So, Caesar's sword, someone disagrees with you, someone looks violent, someone looks threatening, you do violence to them. And what happens to you? There's going to be a Clytemnestra waiting for you eventually at some point, and you're going to die by the same means. You're going to live according to the same justice that you lived according to. But if you choose to listen to the word that Jesus is teaching, there is one judge in the end who's going to judge according to faithfulness to his word. When you pull out the sword against the desire of Jesus, but don't stay awake and protect Jesus according to the will of Jesus, you're clearly following a will that is not Jesus's. So, that's fine. Just realize that the consequences of that will are likely going to be the same as the consequences that Agamemnon faced. And let me be clear, there is no similarity between the original Greek text of the Oresteia and the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. There are similar concepts in principle. What we are saying is that if Matthew is alluding to it, it's a critique. It's a critique anyways. But if there is a connection, it's a critique. Because Clytemnestra and Agamemnon represent everything that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ puts to death. It's very important that you hear this and don't get excited about your fake wisdom. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And in case you're excited about your Spartan might or your Roman legion or your tribe of Judah or in modern times your nuclear arsenal and your fighter jets, whatever it is you think makes you great, just remember that my father is the Lord of hosts and he can take you all out with the blast of his nostrils as we hear in Exodus. He is God. I am weak. Jesus is weak. Jesus is the weakling sheep. <laughs> but his dad is not weak. Please, hear what I'm saying. Jesus is a wimp, but God the Father is no wimp. And if you don't believe me, just attend Richard's Bible study on Ezekiel. You will no longer be confused about who the wimp is in the Bible. He's not bluffing when he says, if my dad wanted to, he could take you all out. Because his dad decided to take Jesus out. Get it? It's a very painful text, Rich. The allusion to the Old Testament, again, is essential. You can't understand this otherwise. If you don't understand that God alone defeated the entire army of Pharaoh when his 12 legions of sons of Israel had no swords whatsoever, no chariots, no horses, and somehow God defeated them, 
And then when God wanted to defeat Jerusalem, he just called up his buddy Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. God put his own sword into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar for him to destroy Jerusalem. God disposes however he wants. He doesn't need people. When Jesus elsewhere says he can raise up sons of Abraham from the stones, he's very correct. We see it happen time and time again. He raised up an army in Ezekiel out of dry bones, a graveyard. And these weren't zombie warriors. <laughs> these were actual soldiers. So God does not live according to the rules of justice and vengeance in this world. He does not live under the aegis of Mount Olympus like those in the Oresteia. He sets the rules and he disposes the rules and he dispatches what he wants to dispatch. In this section, Jesus emphasizes, you cannot defend me. Only my God can. Only my Father can. And if you want to take the role of God, you are submitting to Caesar. You are no longer submitting to me or my father. So this is the choice you, follower of Jesus, must make. Do you want the sword of Caesar, which is made of metal, or do you want the sword of God, which is made of the word? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Again, Jesus has no power in the situation. Jesus submits to the will of his father, Jesus is the weakling sheep, his father who can take out all the might of Pharaoh with a blast of his nostrils. It's not going to do it. He's throwing Jesus to the wolves. And we need to hear it. We need to hear and understand and obey what is being said in Matthew because we are a society and a people that are too proud and too stubborn to take a shot when we're asked to take a shot, to wear a mask when we're asked to wear a mask, to humble ourselves and to consider the plight of our neighbor because of the color of their skin. We're just too proud and too stubborn we don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to consider the possibility that we're wrong. And even if we're right, we're incapable of bowing our head to the Lord and submitting because we're told to, because we would rather defend our stance and our stiff-necked stubbornness in order to prove that we have a right and we're free and no one can tell us what to do because we think that's what the truth is, rather than obey Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed and his Messiah, the weakling sheep, the conquered emperor, who bowed his head to his father and was led like a sheep to the slaughter. When all he had to do was ask his father to make it stop, and he wouldn't dare because he would only submit to his father's decision. All this talk about obedience among Christians is cheap talk in this country, Richard. 
It's cheap talk. I'm frustrated, Father, because I was going to say this is all cheap talk, and you took the words right out of my mouth. We talk with such cheap words, with such cheap sentiment. You are not going to make up for not listening and being obedient to my word by making it impossible for someone else to hear the word, by using violence to protect me. When I have all the violence at my disposal that I need, which I'm not using, you think that it's violence that's going to even out the playing field. You think that it's violence that's going to make everything work the way it's supposed to work. But I'm telling you, obey the scriptures. Obey e The scriptures have to be fulfilled. And I love that word because we say fulfilled, but it really does use this word fill. They have to be filled with action. The words have to become real in the sense that they are animated with a spirit. They're actually doing something. I'm not trying to be woo-woo and there's no zombies here. I'm trying to say the words have to take flesh in us by enacting the end of Matthew 25. Don't pick up your sword. Serve and bow down to the one who lacks food or water or clothing, those in the hospital and those in prison, if you want to do something. If you feel like you need to take action, violence against your neighbor is not in Matthew 25. Kindness, caring, and sacrifice are in Matthew 25. And before you get to the final scene of Matthew 25, it's all about preparation. And you don't get prepared by going to the shooting gallery or hitting the heavy bag in the gym. That's not how you prepare. You prepare by internalizing egrafe the scriptures, so that they might be fulfilled. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.